Thanks for listening to Rare Bird Radio. I'm Doug Cooper, author of the award-winning fiction Outside In and The Investment Club and the 2019 thriller Focus Lost. This podcast is sponsored by Rare Bird Books, based in Los Angeles. A publisher of 50-plus books per year, distributed worldwide by PGW. Today, I have the pleasure of being in conversation with Gary Lippman, author of Set the Controls for the Heart of Sharon Tate, available now wherever books are sold. Welcome, Gary. Thank you, Doug. Great to be connected to you now. Absolutely. So I've been reading uh, Set the Controls for the Heart of Sharon Tate, which has been out for uh, a couple weeks now. So it's out, yeah. it's out in the world. Um, how, how are things going so far? It's a strange feeling having this world you had locked up in your skull suddenly out in, at large in public. You know that with your books. You know, you, you write and you kind of have your own world and decisions and populated by your characters who only you know. And then the ball gets rolling and you find an agent, publisher, and it's out and it's no longer yours. Yeah, I just used the example today. I was uh, at at the dentist. That's how exciting my day was, and we were <laughs> chatting with the hygienist as as she's as she's cleaning my teeth, you know, and and asking me questions at the worst possible time, you know. And then during one of the pauses, I said, you know, I, I don't have children, but I guess it's kind of I imagine it like like children. You you do the best you can with them, and then you turn them out into the world and and hope they make their way. Exactly, except the bonus is with kids, you know, you're paying through your teeth for their upbringing, <laughs> and the books, one hopes, is the opposite cash flow, right, coming into you ultimately. That's right, that's right. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, in, in kind of reading, you said talk about, you were talking about getting, you know, getting it out of your head, but as I'm reading, I feel like I'm kind of getting into your your head, your your writing has has a way of really drawing drawing the reader in and i i like how you take kind of specific like details that seem like they're disconnected but you're able to kind of bring them back and connect them uh, back to the story and as i'm reading these details i start to kind of really think nothing is by nothing by is by accident you know like there's one one little passage that i wanted to draw on where you're talking about the spiders and right. and and its main character lunt morland uh which is just a fabulous name and and Thank you say you. glancing down as he walked lunt noticed two spiders hurrying along the cracked yellowish sidewalk they moved in a kind of spider lockstep as they approached a dirty portion of bubble wrap it was the size of a cd case all its bubbles popped. The spiders piqued Lunt's curiosity. Were they related to each other? Didn't spiders travel alone? Where was the nearest web? Lunt didn't care much about the answers, actually. He even considered stepping on the spiders to make them experience death together, just as Dorothy Parker claimed that she liked to stomp on earthworms. And what I thought was cool there was not just kind of how it took a direction, but you brought it back and there's a Dorothy Parker reference because of the room that he's staying in at this hotel. And then you also took it further about how Sharon Tate was a, you know, an animal lover. So uh, this character would never do that. So I just, I, I love how it kind of is random, but it's all kind of very tight together. Thank you. Thank you for fourth time you go through a book. Mm -hmm. You start seeing stuff and thinking, well, wait a minute, I could connect that. 
you know. So the first draft, best draft people do not include me in their number. I'm all about rewriting because it's only with rewriting. And I wonder if you agree with me. Um, in the rewriting of a fictional work, and I think probably this is true of nonfiction as well, you begin to um, see connections and, and open, open, you can connect and bring it all together. Do you agree with that? Do you yeah, experience abs- that with your own writing? Yeah, absolutely. I, I refer to it as texturing. So, you know, my, when I'm writing, I, I try to write it a lot of different levels like my new book focus lost um you know is ha- has some layering to it with obviously related to kind of paradise lost and the adam and eve and satan you know uh creation story and there's a lot of stuff in there and some people will read it and be like oh i didn't pick up on that you know but and i don't expect everybody to but I try to layer, you know, stuff in there so that um, if if people like those kind of things and that symbolism and 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 that connectedness, they'll find it. And if not, you know, they just kind of stay at one that that top level where they're just kind of absorbing and going with the plot and so forth. Yeah, I like that term, texturing or layering. And of course, just as I say that, as a reader, you discover connections and lay in that texture. Um, a reader, if they're inclined, if you've done your job well enough and hook somebody, if they ever do reread it, they they will catch those things. Or if, even on the first reading, they're very, you know, they'll catch that layering, and the reading experience will all be all the more pleasurable, you know, to find that. I think that's what we read for, right? Uh, I mean, we read for a lot of reasons, but one of them is to say, "Oh man, I like what he did there or she did there." Yeah, I. I- I think too, as as you say, you know, if you read it at different times in in your life, you'll you'll pull out different things based on on your experiences and and what you're bringing, and kind of what's in your unconscious, subconscious that you know is kind of knocking on the door to come out. That when you read something, might just open that open that doorway or passageway. I love that you mentioned that because speaking of being as a reader. I've been in the last, I'm 56 years old now, and in the last six or seven years, not through any, <clears throat> any great design, just kind of came to me, I've begun rereading books I loved in the past. I never reread much before, mm-hmm. because there was, man, there's too much new stuff, how am I ever going to get to that? I can't go back and reread Lolita or Catch-22 or... Or other mm-hmm. books that I really dug when I was in my 20s or 30s or even 40s. i begun to discover the pleasure of rereading and noticed some things I'm amazed uh, don't stand up to my memory of them. A certain book. And, uh, but I do think that as we get older, rereading is something a pleasure not to miss. Yeah, when you're writing, do you, do you actively read or do you... Keep, keep the reading out while while you're in that creative mode. That's a great question. I try not to read anything too close to what you know. For example, I wouldn't read um, while reading this book, which I guess you could call a darkly comic thriller, psychological thriller. Um, I wouldn't read anything too close to that. Uh, so I, I'd read um, a lot of nonfiction. I've been mm-hmm. reading a lot more nonfiction as I get older too. 
um, and reading um, reading things that are you know, not that close, just because I don't want to feel too competitive or too influenced. Mm-hmm. Are you the same? Um, a l- little bit different. I- I'll I'll read as I go go through because I feel like it helps me sharpen what I I want to I want to say. Like reading something else. Number one, it'll kind of inspire me to go to dig, you know, deeper to find exactly what I want to say and do. But it, it does work a little bit more as as a mirror and kind of reflect as I'm reading other other words somewhere in there. I'm, I'm thinking of my own. And, and a lot of times as I'm doing that, I'll just stop and put the, put the book down and then go back and be able to sit down and write. So I'll do it a lot when I'm when I'm tired, stuck or, or something. And then, and then it's kind of like, uh, also walk, like I'll either right. walk or I'll, I'll read. And that usually kind of frees up whatever's, whatever's jumbled up in there. Yeah. You know, walk, I agree with you about walking. Walking is an amazing thing. Your mind kind of goes into a, it could, it could either be good for getting your mind off what we're on and take a break by just taking in the sensory uh, data as you're walking and the physical, enjoying the physical, the physical uh, experience of that. Or you can put your mind in a kind of um, receptive state thinking about what you're working on. And I've, So speaking yeah. of worlds, I mean, you, you are taking us into this world of sharing file sharing of files or s files as yeah. as they're they're known and you know the lead character as i mentioned name is is lunt morland so he's kind of our our tour guide into this into this world can you share with this share with the people that haven't uh haven't picked up the book yet and 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 what this world is about and who lunt morland is sure i um I first hatched the idea for this book many, many years ago when I was sitting in a bar on the Upper West Side, uh, sitting alone at the bar and gazing at the very attractive blonde female bartender and thinking that she looked familiar. She looked like someone I knew or know. She looked more like an actress or celebrity of some sort. And then I realized with some dismay that she looked actually like Sharon Tate the murdered movie starlet from back in the late 60s. And uh, fortunately, I knew enough not to, to tell her, hey, you look like Sharon Tate. Has anybody ever told you that? I knew not to do that. But uh, I got thinking, as fiction writers often do, and Doug, you do this, I'm sure, you say, what if? And I yep. thought, initially, I thought, what if someone was dating someone who looked like Sharon Tate? That'd be weird. And then I went further and thought, what if someone was not dating someone who looked like Sharon Tate, but was obsessed with Sharon Tate and, you know, had built his or her, in this case, his whole life around her, you know, and just even though she's long gone, felt so, so sort of crazy about her and fixated on her that his whole life was arranged around her, collecting her clothing and collecting other memorabilia that she'd had or that's connected to her. Um, and, uh, and because it was Sharon Tate, that brings in a lot of baggage that someone like, for example, Julia Roberts or Meg Ryan don't bring with them. Mm-hmm. The, the tragic fate, first of all, that Sharon Tate suffered, her 
her husband uh, and then widower, Roman Polanski, the controversial movie director. Mm -hmm. And of course, people at the time of her murder said that her murder seemed like it could have been uh, drawn from one of Polanski's really spooky films. Um, and uh, then Manson, of course, and that whole crazy, uh, crazy subculture of, that Manson uh, stirred up. So uh, it seemed like an amazing story uh, to tell. Someone obsessed with Sharon Tate. What, what if he bumps into people who are obsessed with Manson? Um, how does he feel about Polanski, competitive with Polanski, scornful of Polanski? And other Sharon Tate, I thought, okay, let's not just have this guy be alone, but actually in a sort of subculture of other Sharon Tate fans, these Sharonophiles or S-files, mm -hmm. who, who are all equally worshipful of her. So um, I, I got working on it, and that was 30 years ago, and it took 30 years of putting the book away for years and years at a lacking enough self-belief in myself as a writer and in the project itself um, to go forward. So I would leave it for maybe 10 years. There was gaps of 10 years where I wouldn't look at it. I'd always remember it and it sort of nagged at me. And I thought, I really should finish that. I really should get that the way I want it and send it out. And uh, when I finally did finish it, largely through the encouragement of my wife who said, you know, you got to finish everything, finish it, you know, get, do mm -hmm. it, do it, send it out, or you'll never know. So I did. And I think a very healthy attitude in sending it out was, you know, win, lose, or draw, you know, if it doesn't make it, at least I tried. And uh, there's a great scene, by the way, one book I reread recently was uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Mm -hmm. Have you read that, Doug? Yeah. Yeah. So I thought it was great. I, I had some issues with it, but uh, I thought it's really, truly deserves its status as an American classic. And, uh, and I was struck by a scene in there where the protagonist, McMurphy, is trying to do this really big physical labor and fails, mm -hmm. but looks at everyone from the depths of his failure and says sort of scornfully, at least I tried. Yeah. And I thought, I think that's a, that's a positive attitude to have, that you don't focus on the outcome with a piece of writing or any endeavor, that you say, I'm going to do my best, send it out, and if, it's, if it wins, cool. But uh, it's the effort and the process that matter more than the outcome ultimately. Well, as long as the delay wasn't to, due to too much interfering with yourself, and, you know, I, I won't reveal the, the total spoiler on that one. People are going to have to read for that full reference. But I'll just say that, that the young, uh, the young Lunt Moreland has his, his mother, uh, walk in on him when he's interfering with himself. So, and there's some good subtle, uh, you know, some good references in, in, in there to that. So I think that's just also some, some of the humor I think that comes through and, and some of the, uh, the way you're able to phrase things and um, say things without explicitly saying them, but at the same point, you know, they're still very clear. 
Well, thank you, man. Since we're on the phone now and not face-to-face, I guess either one of us could be interfering with ourselves (laughs) right now, and we'll never know. (laughs) The beauty of of radio and podcasts. Exactly. God bless it. Who needs these (laughs) these cameras? Let's stick with just the audio. But I want to ask, Doug, do you, did you, have you, with especially your first novel, but the other two as well, have you had struggles with self-belief and uh, uh, not, not, and self-doubt, you know, and saying, oh man, this won't work, or I'm not good enough. Yeah, I, I think the, you know, the self-doubt is, is, is definitely always a part because it is a pretty grand undertaking to think you're going to create something um, from nothing put it out into the world. Other people are going to buy it and it's going to have, have some value. Um, but you know, one, one piece of advice that I, I learned and I'll share with, with people, because once you have a book out there, you, people will always come to you and ask you about the process and how they can take their ideas. And, um, you know, one of the things I kept, you know, a journal for a lot of years and, and these things, um, really, you know, really took shape over time. And, and one of the things I learned was, you know, you can't create and edit at the same time. You know, if mm. you, you almost have to shut off that doubt. And, and I always refer to it as my writing as throwing up on the page and, you know, cleaning it up later so it doesn't stink so bad. Um, and, and, and that's why I'm like you when we talked earlier about the multiple, the multiple drafts, you know, the, the first time for me, I'm just trying to get it down and I write in a hundred page segments, you know, and, and, and get a hundred pages and then I'll go back. And by that hundredth page, I'm, I'm pretty sure that it's the worst thing that's ever been written. And then when I go back, and I'm like, ooh, this isn't too bad. There's some, there's some salvageable things here. I can, I can, I can work with this and this and this. And then, you know, you do that uh, three or four times, and all of a sudden, you got a three to four hundred page novel. And and then, then uh, what I used to hate with just the editing part, I actually am starting to to enjoy that piece as well. To do, you know, the the just kind of fine tuning and, and that texturing and, and layering that we were talking about before. But, uh, you know, there, that's just one of those universal things that uncertainty and, and doubt, but even when you're, I think the writing and the uncertainty, that's, uh, I can deal with that a little bit better. I think it's on the whole marketing and selling side. That's, that's even a whole nother level of doubt and uncertainty once you yeah. kind of put it out there and, and you, at least when you're editing and, and making those changes and you're uncertain, you have some control over it. But, you yeah. know, once that thing rolls off the press and, or those, those eBooks are, are uploaded to the sites, you know, it's, it's out there and, and uh, you know, the bullets are just going to fly. <laughs> that's where the thick skin comes in. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think um, you know. You remind me when I first was uh, early in in writing, um, even before I began work on the Sharon Tate book. I when I first started in earnest writing, I uh, got all jammed up because I was doing exactly what you're saying one shouldn't do, which is I was being the editor in the first draft, 
when, whereas you put, very well put it, first draft should be about creating and just getting mm-hmm. it down on the paper, no matter what it's, you know, vomiting it onto the paper. But I was getting jammed up trying to make every sentence perfect. And uh, I thought, you know what? I don't need to, in the first draft, make it fancy, get every metaphor right. right. You know, I just need to tell a story, whatever story it is, even a made-up one, like I would in a bar. And, of course, there's been plenty of made-up stories told in bars. Sure. And <laughs> they're not all real. So um, when, uh, when I read that, I suddenly was freed to a great extent. And I, to this day, tell friends if they want to get writing, um, I tell them that quote, you know, because it really people when they read, even serious, serious fiction, I was just reading an interview with Don DeLillo earlier mm-hmm. today. And uh, DeLillo, as, have you, I'm sure you've read some DeLillo. Doug. Yeah. Yeah, you know, as, as wonderful with language as he is mm-hmm. and concepts. And sometimes I think he gets, he loses me a bit. Um, but he's always got a really cool story to tell. And, uh, and great scenes and great compelling characters. Well, I should say almost always. There have been a few yeah. books of his where, where I didn't believe that. But, you know, my favorites, for example, White Noise or Libra, uh, you know, he's firing on all cylinders. And there's, you know, great story at the core of all the great language. So for the first draft, I always try to, like you, just get it out and then go back and not only layer it, but catch the boneheaded mistakes and the tone deaf, you know, language, et cetera. I have a question. Mm-hmm. Do you read stuff out loud? Your I, own do. Stuff? I do. Yeah. yeah. I've, I've found, uh, I've, that's something that I, I learned, um, my first book outside in, I actually went into the studio and did the audio book mm-hmm. and just, reading it cover to cover, you know, certain things stood out to me, um, you know, hearing them, um, you know, you read something so many times and it sounds fine in your head and then you read it out loud. And some of them, you know, I would change and, and some of them, you know, even though they don't sound as good out loud as they do in your head, you know, majority of people are, are reading so they're 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 going in their head but i think it's a great way to especially with dialogue exchanges you know to to just find out some some things that aren't working and i'm i know that you've written um theater so you know that was one of the things i i I assumed but i'll let you kind of expand on it um just because in in that you know, writing the theater that you are always hearing your, your work back to you audibly. Um, so is that something that even with fiction that you keep on? Well, you know, um, I ask if you read your fiction out loud to yourself because uh, I recently did a, a book reading, my first book reading, and read mm-hmm. my, my own prose out loud in public for the first time. And in practicing for that, I was told you gotta you can't do it first time up there, so I did yeah. a little practice, and uh, I was amazed at how many changes I would make. Even though I had just edited the book most recently a few months ago, I was amazed how hearing it out loud gave me a whole different perspective on it. Hearing your your prose and your dialogue in your head is simply not the same 
and mm-hmm. speaking it out loud. So I kind of decided I, I've never done that really in the past, even though writer friends have t- advised me to partly because I don't like the sound of my own voice and I'm impatient. And um, so I've avoided doing that. But I think for any future writing I do, I'm going to read it out loud, force myself to do that um, because uh, it really makes a difference. And uh, as you mentioned, theater, I've had um, uh, play produced in New York um, and I've had other plays, readings done of them, stage readings. Um, that's completely different because they're with just dialogue and hearing people take it in different directions. In mm-hmm. other words, when it's not you yourself reading your language out loud, but actors who go in different directions with it and enunciate mm-hmm. lines differently than you would think, it's both a little frustrating because you want to say, you know, no, 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 no. emphasize that word, not that one, mm-hmm. you know, but at the same time, um, they do it better in many cases. You think, oh, wow, I didn't think you could say it that way or that that yeah. character, that character is that sort of person and, uh, or can, can perform this scene in that way. And uh, it's illuminating and great. If I, if I could, I would write more theater. I, I love having, you know, I love writing fiction, but I find writing um, plays, um, the, maybe it's the fact that you're more limited in terms of your, you can't range as freely. You're telling the whole story in dialogue and stage directions, right? You're not going mm-hmm. into physical description. You're not going into mental, you know, thoughts as much although you could do soliloquies, I guess, and have a character address the audience what he's thinking. Um, but the more limited uh, range of, of uh, what you do as a playwright versus as a fiction writer seems, I won't say easier, but it's, it's less to... It's like, um, it's like uh, you're in a smaller room, Mm-hmm. getting around a smaller room. Have you written drama at all? I Well, actually, uh, my book, Focus Lost, um, I wrote as a screenplay initially um, because for a couple different reasons. One, I, I wanted to, like you're saying, I wanted to limit myself and and be, you know, not rely on the words and description so much as make it more action and and dialogue. And also, as I said, you know, kind of with the symbolism to Paradise Lost, and I wanted to create this idea of a camera, almost like the eye of God, kind of telling the story or a director, kind of these different meanings. And I thought a good way to do that was, hey, I'll write this as a screenplay uh, first and kind of capture all the scenes and the action and everything and then put it into novel form to keep that perspective. Yeah, that sounds, well, it sounds great. And so you made the transition after doing one draft as a screenplay or... Yeah, I pretty much ha- I had the screenplay, you know, I had it very much, you know, in that 120, you know, page range for a screenplay and I said, "Okay, this is this is good. I I like this." And then when I wrote the novel, you know, it was only about 100 and 
you know, 40 pages or something, 150 pages maybe. I said, oh, this is a bit thin. And, uh, and that's when I started focusing on more of the other character stories, you know, because with the, with a film, you know, you have the ability to tell, you know, one or, or two arcs or very much, you know, that, that one plot. Mm-hmm. But I think one of the things I love ri- about writing novels is you have so much more landscape and, and with, with the characters and, and, you know, it's one of the things I love about the new, uh, kind of age of television we're in and with the dramatic series and everything is that they're so character driven and, you know, that you get so much more time with these characters yeah. and, and to develop them. So that was yeah. really, you know, in, in doing the novel, I really fleshed out the characters more. And, um, one, one of the things, you know, you mentioned your play, the, the paradox lost. And yeah, as speaking, I said, well, yeah, the Milton connection, yeah. you and I have that. Yeah, yeah, what was what was that? What was that? Well, um, par- you know, that Paradox, play? that play was, it was a comedy, kind of a sex comedy, pretty twisted, mm-hmm. and kind of got into meta stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it was fun. It's nothing I'm, I would <laughs> I would revive, uh, mm-hmm. necessarily, but it was fun for the time. Um, and the title, of course, is Miltoni, and it comes from uh, Finnegan's Wake, uh, where Joyce was riffing, James Joyce was riffing on Milton's Paradise Lost. So I, at the time, thought that was cute, Paradox Lust. Mm-hmm. And it does kind of apply to the content of the play, but I've kind of come to think that I don't really dig puns that much for titles, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I wouldn't, you won't be seeing me punning, at least in titles, anytime soon. But I think your title, Focus Lost, is terrific. I, my first thought was of um, film. Yeah. So. Uh, um, yeah, that's all. That whole kind of metaphor and everything is, like I said, with weave through throughout and and the double, the the the, the double meanings, um, the double meanings there, and and it's a lot about you know obsession and passion and that that fine line between you know when you go from passion to obsession and and ultimately how uh, you can lose focus on what's important in that transition right. and, and completely lose, completely lose yourself. Um, so, so one of the things I wanted to ask is, you know, you, you, we were talking about characters and uh, you know, you have such great character names, you know, Thank Glenn, you. Glenn Mandrake, who, you know, checks into the hotel and, you know, he's pretty pompous <clears throat> and um, really full of himself and checks himself in as uh, Melik Rangdang, which, you know, he loves to point out was was an anagram, you know, and, <laughs> and then the, the female friend of Lunt, uh, uh, Bronson and Pandora. And do you put a lot of thought into the names? Because they're really quite great and they really convey and and really match up with these characters very thank you. well thank you i i really appreciate that you appreciate him because i do put care in i love um i love strange names and uh, i think i first developed a taste for them reading thomas pynchon mm-hmm. who uh you know ha- i think probably in fact on my bookshelf earlier today i noticed i actually own a book that's simply a list of character names in Thomas Pynchon's novels with the etymology of the name, you know, the, 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 um, uh, possible origins of the names, for example, in gravity's rainbow, 
Pinchon has a character, a doctor, like a neuroscientist, whose name is Jamf, J-A-M-F. Mm-hmm. And according to the book here, uh, the annotation for that name is, it's an acronym. The name is an acronym, J-A-M-F stands for Jive-Ass Motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, how can I, I you love not love... Stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's terrific, right? How can you not love a business where you can play like that, right? With language and and a friend of mine, I think I'm talking out of school here, but I'll give a little news flash. A friend of mine, um, uh, I've never met Pinchon. Uh, I admire him greatly. I wrote a piece about him for the Paris Review once. Um, and I've never met him, uh, but I do know a few people who know him or have had contact with him. And... Um, and and he, in a letter to a friend, mentioned a different name of a different character in a different book. And it was something like uh, like that J-A-M-F, Jive-ass motherfucker character name. So he's continuing to do that um, and playing with names. And his, his character names from just the protagonist, Oedipa Moss, Tyrone Slothrop, um, the character names alone in Pinchon are tremendous. Of course, that dates back to Fielding and Richardson and the earliest novelist, Tristram Shandy, you know, um, Lawrence Stern, where they would have, and Dickens, of course, is a master of doing that, where the names are kooky. Sometimes they're a bit too obvious in Dickens, in Dickens um, but they're great. And uh, even when they're pretty obvious, they're funny. So yeah, name. I'm glad you mentioned that because names are important. And um, and uh, yeah, when people want to, when people wonder, you know, what a, what do writers do when they're not writing it? We're, we're spending far <laughs> too much time on names. I know for you know all my books, I the the names are are definitely a part of the story that I'm telling. You know, like in Focus Lost. As I said, it's a Adam, Eve, Satan, and the the Satan character is Levi Combs, and it's you know Levi is an anagram for evil. Evil comes, and um, uh, you know the the agent character who's after modeled after Eve is Ava Flores. So there's the flowers and and oh and yeah, Eve. and and then Gabriel Adams is kind of the Adam, the and he's got a little guardian angel aspect to him and. And in the Vegas one, uh, Vegas book about the five broken people who meet at a blackjack table in downtown Vegas, you know, all the characters have some kind of financial or, or money. Like one guy's name is Max Doler. Um, and, oh, that's great. Uh, Chris, yeah, Crystal Moore, Bill Price, um, Les, uh, uh, Lester, um, who goes by less, you know, everything has this kind of rising and falling money, financial relationship. And, and I always worry, oh, am I being too heavy handed here and, and too obvious, like, like you're saying? And it's just amazing when, you know, we'll, we'll be doing a book signing or, or talking and we'll bring that up. And, and most people still don't get it. So I'm like, oh, maybe I'm, I need to take it, a, take it a bit farther. But then every so, you know, people, certain people, I think, and it's just, again, that why do people read and, and what type of reader they are? Some people really like to chew on that. So when I'm reading, you know, and, and I'll notice very little things. And, I, and I'll always wonder, oh, did the writer do that intentionally? And, you know, what was, why did they do that? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I love 
that those names that you just mentioned, they're great. I hope I'm thinking now, I hope when I read the Vegas book, for example, I would have caught those. <laughs> I hope I'm attentive enough an attentive <laughs> enough reader that I would have caught those. Um, that's great because Vegas, when I was there, I spent uh, a lot of time there. I never lived there like you did, but I had a very unusual job, maybe one of my favorite jobs I've ever had. Not that I had a lot of real favorites, but yeah, I'll go ahead and say this was my single favorite. I was the Fodor's travel guide writer for Vegas, where I focused on nightlife. So oh. Fodor's would send me, would pay me to go to Las Vegas and go to bars and clubs and strip bars, you know, and write about them, <laughs> which was such an absurd job, you know, where I would be there about two weeks out of the year and just going from place to place. And uh, I may have even encountered you in one of those places back well, then. Well, I was going to say, you know, my, my one of those five broken people was uh, a – a musical performer turned stripper. Um, and I always say doing the research character in Vegas will probably be the most expensive uh, <laughs> character that, that I ever write because I, you know, I did my research. I'll say I did my research diligently and <laughs> sometimes uh, maybe a bit too much. And, uh, you know, was, was, Waking up the next day, scratching my head, uh, um, wondering if 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 it really was research or uh, or my own uh, own indulgence driving you, driving that. You and I may have, you and I may have been in the same <laughs> club researching side by side without knowing each other. <laughs> and your character, if I was wasted enough, she may have sprang from your mind onto the dance floor, and I actually witnessed her <laughs> dancing. Right. I, I remember one, you know, given that I was there, I would take notes, you know, while it was at the strip club, as well mm. as the bars and clubs. But the strip club, it was especially absurd, you know, taking notes. Um, and one dancer came over, the, the manager of the place said, uh, you know, I told him, it was strange. Sometimes I'd say that I was there for photos, travel guide, um, and the manager would get it and would, you know, be nice to me. And other times they didn't give a shit, you know, they just mm -hmm. say, Oh yeah. All right. Have fun. You know, but, um, and I wasn't looking for freebies cause that'd be weird, you know, that, yeah. that that'd be unprofessional. But, um, at one point, you know, this one manager in a club sent a woman over and she said, would you like to lap a lap dance? And, um, she asked me, uh, so what do you do for a living? And uh, I had the pleasure of answering her, actually, I'm kind of working right now, <laughs> right? <laughs> research, the research. I love it. I love it. You know what was the craziest thing there? I was often there during the, and I'm sure you remember this, when the um, porn convention oh, would yeah. be there. Usually January, right? Late January, early February. Was that it? Yeah, they it's always yeah, had the, it, the, the adult, adult film. Yeah, the yeah. adult film, yeah. They always had it at the same time as a consumer electronics convention, <laughs> I remember. Yeah. So I actually was there once <laughs> in, an, in the same hotel as the then very popular adult film actress, Jenna Jameson. Mm -hmm. And I on the elevator in my hotel, and there she was with her bake cards. So I nodded, you know, or didn't nod. I just thought, okay, here we go. Interesting. Mm -hmm. We didn't speak, 
But when we got to the ground floor, I said, you know, after you, and went out with her bodyguards. What I thought was amazing was waiting to get on the elevator was an Amish family. Oh, my goodness. Did you know when you were living in Vegas, an Amish family? No, I can't say that I, <laughs> I came across I have, I never, I've never, I rarely see an Amish family in New York or anywhere, but uh, there they were waiting to board the elevator that we were getting out of. And Jenna Jameson, uh, walked out, and I walked out and turned and watched as this Amish family got on the elevator. And then I thought to myself, this is a beautiful Vegas moment here where Jenna Jameson walks through the same patch of universe as an Amish family, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's that a was... great. That's a great, great visual. Uh, um, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure yeah. you might have been hallucinating on that, but uh, <laughs> it could have been. It doesn't matter, you been. know. That's sometimes when you say, "Did that <clears throat> happen?" or "Or did I imagine it?" And at the at the end of the day, if if that's your how you remember it, yeah. It, it well, really that's like the expression. Matter. Exactly. I'm glad you think that way too. Right, right. Yeah. Well, hey, I think I, I don't know if that story can be topped. So I think we're probably <laughs> up against it, and that's a good uh, a good one to end on. So tell uh, tell everybody listening how can they find out more about set the controls for the heart of Sharon Tate and other writing and events that you're going to be doing uh, to promote it. Uh, well, uh, the book is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, though, of course, I'd prefer people buy it from a bookstore, a real-life bookstore, uh, especially an independent bookstore. I did a great reading at Book Soup, where you can, in Los Angeles, where the book can be had. I'm reading at The Strand on the 25th of September, rush down to The Strand, and um, I hope to have... Uh, more great conversations like I've just had with you, Doug. Well, thanks so much, Gary. And anybody interested in finding more about me uh, can go to my website, buycooper, B-Y-C-O-O-P-E-R.com, or any bookstore, online retailer has all the books outside in, The Investment Club and The New Thriller, uh, Focus Lost, and as Gary said, uh, you know, if we appreciate any book you buy, but supporting the independent bookstores is 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 our preference. And if you want to find a good independent bookstore, if you go to IndieBound.org, there's always you can just put in your zip code and it'll tell you the ones right in the area. So right. any last words, Gary, before? I just want to conclude by saying thank you for the great questions. It was a pleasure speaking with you, Doug. Yeah, thanks, Gary. And I look so that, forward to delving into your books. I appreciate that. And that's going to wrap us up here. I'm Doug Cooper, author of the award-winning fiction Outside In and the Investment Club, and my new thriller, Focus Lost. This podcast is sponsored by Rare Bird Books, based in Los Angeles, a publisher of 50-plus books per year, distributed worldwide by PGW. Thanks again to Gary Lippman for joining me in conversation to talk about his book, Set the Controls for the Heart of Sharon Tate. Thanks for joining our conversation on Rare Bird Radio. We look forward to talking to you again real soon.